number 10 for Brendan Taylor. Adams has got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada. We're talking about how good he is. And there it is. It's 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, take it. Deep mid-wicket. Glenn Maxwell celebrates. Derek Coley cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the DNet Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast with me, Dean Duplessis. Great to have you along as we approach the end of 2020. And we certainly have had some fantastic interviews to uh, listen to throughout the year, starting off with David Gower, Graham Hick, Kumar Sangakara, A.B. de Villiers, who had such a fantastic season in the IPL. Many, many more for you to listen to. So uh, why don't you maybe give uh, any of your cricketing friends or family a shout out and ask them to subscribe via their favorite podcast app, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Drive. There are a number of ways that you can subscribe and have a listen. So how many people know that Zimbabwe actually do have a match referee? He's a man who uh, had a very good first-class record Unfortunately, by the time he got to play test cricket, which was in 1992, he'd suffered a number of rather severe knee injuries uh, and even then was still able to give a pretty good account of himself in the test matches that he played. It was only a handful, but he certainly was very instrumental for uh, Zimbabwe in the 1980s and their progression towards test status. He was a fine lawyer, an outstanding commentator, and now one of the best match referees going around. I'm, of course, referring to Zimbabwe's very own Andy Pycroft, who will uh, very shortly be off to South Africa, where he will be match refereeing the one-day series, which will be played between South Africa and England. So then, Andy Pycroft obviously has many stories to tell being a match referee. He certainly doesn't just sit in a cold, dark little room, eating a whole bunch of sandwiches and drinking tea or coffee or water. But uh, not only does he have the serious side of him, but he also has the more humorous side. And uh, he first of all starts off by telling us about a wonderful, rather humorous contest between two players, one from the West Indies and one from England. I'll leave you to figure out who they are. I think the most amusing setup I've had and had to deal with would have been probably West Indies versus England in the Caribbean Antigua, if my memory serves me correctly, about three or four years ago, right at the beginning of uh, Ben Stokes's career for England, and uh, before he's become the magnificent cricketer he is now. Um, so he was a, a, a cricketer with a huge potential, but when he started, was one of those who got the red mist quickly. So he got annoyed with things, and he could overstep the line, as we say. So he was always going to be one you were talking to or trying to advise, listen, pull it back. And on the other side of things, you had a couple of West Indians who were prepared to aggravate him. And they're very different characters and very cool and calm and, and what have you. And w- without mentioning the name of the particular West Indian, and I only do so because I hope I'm not going to defame anyone at the time. But Ben Stokes uh, and, and this particular individual were getting rattled. And they're both all-rounders. And as the test went on, when the one batted, the other was having a go at him with the ball. And when the and vice versa, when the innings changed. And it was building and building. And I remember talking to Ben Stokes at one stage. 
and saying, listen, you've got to pull it back. Just This is during the test match. Right. Well, it comes his final knock uh, during that test. And he, he, the moment he comes into to bat, of course, the West Indian captain puts this particular individual on to bowl. And I'll give you a clue, he's an off-spinner. Uh-huh. And yeah. he comes into bowl and Ben Stokes just blocks everything. So the captain then produces a, a spinner from the other end and Ben Stokes has a full harry at him, gets out caught on the boundary and the, rest, the red mist you can see. And the reaction of the, the individual who is having the go with him is, is important because Stokes, in order to get back to the change room, has to pass him. And in passing him, in fact, way before he's even got to him, he stands in the position of a rear admiral that has his whole f- uh, personnel on the ship below him taking the salute. And he's literally still saluting there as Stokes walks past him. Oh, not a word was said. Not a word was said. And Stokes looked up and I thought, and we just say, I was just saying to the umpires over the radio, well, well, this guys, just keep a watch. Something's going to happen. Watch, watch, watch. Stop him. And nothing happened. He walked past, and as Stokes walked past, down went the salute, and it was all over. But honestly, at the time, it was so funny. Within five minutes, I've got a call from the ICC. What are you guys going to do about this? And I said, you know what? I'm still laughing. We're not going to do anything. (laughs) That was not a send-off in the terms of code of conduct. He must face something. That is absolute brilliant humor. That that is fantastic humor. And... So do you sometimes have to revisit uh, situations? Uh, so in other words, your video footage will be very useful. Revisit a situation where you think that, oh, hold on, maybe, you know, we saw what this player did. But uh, on second thought, maybe it's worthwhile looking at it because it doesn't necessarily give a good example to the younger players. Are there times we have to go back and revisit an incident or are decisions pretty much made there and then as to how to deal with situations? No, these things can take you hugely by surprise in the recent England versus South Africa test series, which I did all four tests uh, running from December through to January. Um, There were a lot of codes of conduct situations that we had, some of which we didn't even know until the next morning. So um, you probably will have seen a bit of it. We had Josh Butler, the England keeper, who had a go at Philander while he was batting. There were a lot of words. We knew there were words going out there. But remember, it's my job is is going to be the judge of any situation like that. It's the umpires who make the reports. And the third umpire who sits next to me in the room is right next to the monitor. He couldn't hear what was being said, even though Butler's right behind the stumps and there's a stump microphone there. And the players all know if anything comes through that stump mic and if, if it's any swear word, particularly those with the capital F and the capital C, they will be coded. You will definitely be pinged and you will lose at least 15% of your salary. They all know that. But Butler's right behind. He's giving him grief, but we don't know what's being said. Now, we didn't know what was being said, so it just went through in the game. The next morning, I get a, a, a mail from, from the ICC office, and what are you going to do about this? And I said, well, what are you talking about? And to cut a long story short, what had happened was that even though we couldn't get anything, it had come over over TV. Oh. So I don't know why there was a difference between what was happening on the stump mic uh, through to our room as opposed to what was uh, audible on TV elsewhere. Uh, uh, there is an explanation for it. It's quite technical. But the end rub of it was it was all over social media, even to the extent that it had been uh, – you could pick it up on a clip and they had a balloon with all the words that were being said over the top of it. It had all been done. Wow. So 
By the time I saw it for the first time, those words were very audible, and of course they weren't the words you should be, you should be publicising with kids and everyone listening and hearing. So we 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 duly had to prepare papers, um, and, and 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 deal with it. And and in that circumstance, two of the umpires who who were handling the test, it was the last day. This was the last day when it happened. Uh, we're already going back home. I had to grab them quickly and say, on the way to the airport, listen, guys, we need you to sign forms quickly. I need you to, first of all, hear and see whether you're going to make a report. But ICC is suggesting there's going to have to be something done. So there's your answer. You don't always know at the time. And, and, I mean, it's a very difficult one, isn't it, Pikes? Because it's that that the difference of overstepping the line. But, I mean, you don't exactly want a cricket match to be you know, completely soft. You, you do like that bit of banter and a bit of sledging, I suppose, because sometimes it brings the best or indeed the worst out of a player. So now it's trying to find the balance of when a player does overstep the line versus a player actually just, you know, getting stuck in and, and not just standing there as if they were in the naughty corner at school and not, and not saying anything. Yeah, that's part of the job. Um, you know, the umpires, as I said to you, are the ones who decide whether a yeah. report should be made. But we've got to make the decision at the end. And it's only the Western world in a legal sense that the judge remains aloof. Quite often, I mean, if you take the French legal system, for example, the judge will have parts to do with the actual prosecution. So rather like that, there are circumstances where I might say to the umpires, listen, you might want to consider this or you might want to consider that or you, what are you bringing to me in terms of... So, yes, uh, we will have a part to play in deciding uh, even before there's been a prosecution, whether something should be brought forward. And you're dead right. There's a line out there. I would suggest that that line can get blurred. But the, 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 the prime word to you, is it abusive or is it humorous or is it something that can get on the back of someone? If it's clearly abusive, you don't have a problem. Sometimes these things are difficult to judge. I'll give you an example. Um, the Australian's have just recently been in South Africa and I did the series three ODIs and three T20s and this was their first visit since Warner and Smith had uh, received their bannings for the ball tampering incident which I also did in South Africa two years before that and being a part of both processes I knew how sensitive the whole security situation was going to be I knew how Warner and Smith were going to be uh, subject to stuff coming from spectators and I knew that there would be banners and abuse. So one of the things I did pre-tour was to sit with the Australians and go with them on what their fears were, then sit with the South Africans, sit with security, and at the pre-series meetings, which we always have with captains and coaches and, and managers, try and work out a protocol as to what was going to be acceptable and what wasn't, trying to anticipate. Well, the first game happens at the Wanderers, and the anthems are happening before the game, and I turn my eye to the right and I see a group of the crowd who've already got their banners up, and there's references to where you can buy sandpaper and references to... Now, that's humorous. Yes. But there were also banners out there abusing the Australians, and so basically sent security around immediately to confiscate or take them away for the game or whatever. So there's a line. Is it humorous? Is it something that is trying to get the around the back of a player or... We're dealing spectator to player here, but it's also player to player. You know, some stuff is funny, some stuff is irritating, and some stuff is abusive. And you've got to draw the line in the right place. Finding the right, finding the right place. And 
Uh, normally, when when we read uh, match reports or when we re- read that a, a player has been, you know, fined ten percent of his match fee for certain things that he, or dare I say, even she, I suppose, shouldn't have done. Um, what is it like when you need to communicate with that player? Because do they normally just accept it without any quibble, or have you at times had a situation where the player said, "No, hold on, this is not right. You know, I I I never quite did it the way that it come it came across as." The first thing you've got to realize is that probably, I'm guessing, but I would say 90 to 95% of the charges that are brought forward against a player are in the end admitted by the player and there's an agreed um, fine or penalty. So there is a talking procedure that might happen before all that transpires. Mm. But at the end of the day, one talks through it, one gets him to understand uh, what's wrong, or it might be, in, in the example of a, uh, the, the butler incident, I haven't even seen the guy, he signed it, I've, I was wrong. I'm apologising right now. I'm, you know, so you get that as well. At the end of the day, though, we stay in the same hotels as the players. So that's not always easy socially. And I try and, you've, try, you've got to try and have a balance between remaining aloof because you are the guy that's going to make the decision if any code of conducts happen, but at the same time, trying to be approachable and trying to have an open door so that the player can understand, the coach and the manager can understand, they can come in and talk about things and try and reason and try and work it out. At the same time, I can see them easily and we get an understanding. And I can say by and large on the circuit, we have an understanding with managers and coaches particularly that um, we know where our lines are. And we, when we socialise and everything, it's forgotten and you move on. Exactly. And by and large with the players, that's true as well, particularly with the experienced players. Mm, yeah. I want to take you back to something very interesting that you said. Uh, you were also the match referee in that very unfortunate Warner Smith Bancroft incident. Now, as a match referee, you had an official job to do. But I want to focus more on you as a cricket lover. You've played the game at the highest level. You played a lot of first-class cricket. You scored over 4,000 runs at a very respectable average playing first-class cricket. Now you've commentated, you've coached, so you are a true and genuine cricket lover. How did that hurt you when all of this started coming about? And how long beforehand did you know that there was something afoot? Did you actually know that there was something afoot before, before it, it actually really happened? Well, to answer the, 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 the last question first, the answer is no, we didn't. And you will have picked up that the, from TV um, that that gave the guideline to, to the whole situation. Every single ball tampering thing that we've had over the last 10 years, I'm afraid to say, has been picked up by TV, if, if not all, 90% of the time, and by the home broadcaster against the foreign side, the side touring. Right. It's never been the other way around. It has never been a local side that's been caught ball tampering in its own home. And uh, there's a worry on that. But I won't go further on that. Let's suffice to say that TV picks it up. Uh, immediately, um, I'm, I'm focused on it. And I'm saying that doesn't look right. Uh, to be fair to the Australian manager, and I don't mind talking this because it needs to, I need to blow his trumpet on this. He was outstanding. He came straight through and said, that doesn't look right. I will have a word. Let's find out the background to this. And we were talking behind the scenes a lot. Let me say this to you. They admitted what they'd done very quickly uh, in circumstances where they're not the only 
people who've been messing around with balls over that period of time, and I don't need to go further into that. Um, but they also took it on board uh, uh, because even though we had maximum fines that we were giving Smith, uh, in fact, Smith, we didn't even know was involved till he admitted it. And if, if he hadn't admitted it, we wouldn't have been finding him because we didn't know. Mm-hmm. But obviously Bancroft, because he was he was caught on TV. But all of the, the, the suspensions came through Australian board. So it was handled very well, in my view, from there. But to answer the overall question, yes, it's disappointing when that happens. There are big advantages to messing the ball up um, early and get, uh, getting the reverse swing. There are big advantages to a side that can get away with that sort of thing if we don't police it. Um, and the ICC has got stricter and stricter in terms of what can happen, even if you don't know the ball's, the ball's being messed up, but you don't know who's dealing with it. The captain now has responsibility ever since then or just before then, which didn't happen in, in the past. Um, these things happen in cricket because sides have a lot to gain. Um, there's a lot of money at stake. And these things do happen when you're trying to win at all costs, which is unfortunate at times. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. Oh, fascinating stuff by Zimbabwe match referee Andy Pycroft, who, uh, of course, has been involved in all sorts of very interesting things. So uh, the way how he actually got the job was that uh, he was interviewed very nicely by the ICC, albeit a very vigorous interview. It was down at Newlands in Cape Town in 2009. Gosh, wouldn't it be nice to be interviewed there? Um, in terms of getting a job, and I think it would be quite something. Well, as I've already alluded to, Andy was a fine player. Unfortunately, we didn't really see the best of him because when he was at his peak, uh, matches, well, Zimbabwe didn't have their test status, and of course those matches wouldn't have been televised. But I can tell you that back in 1990, he scored a magnificent 122 against what was known as the Young Australians. It included both the War Brothers, it included Shane Warne, it included, uh, well, several other. Mike Whitney, that big, strong left armour. And Andy Pycroft scored a lot of runs against them. He also scored huge amounts of runs against uh, the young West Indies. I wonder why they didn't just call them Australia A and West Indies A, as they do now in the modern time. Be that as it may, believe in me, in terms of first-class cricket, he made his mark and was a very good player. In fact, many people referred to him as the accumulator because he was able to get down the wicket, use his feet against the spinners, find the gaps, and then suddenly unleash with a big hit over extra cover or deep in wicket. So he certainly was a fine player who never really got the recognition he deserved. But uh, Andy, being the quiet and laid-back man that he is, was very quick to talk about some of the Zimbabwean players who he played with when playing for Zimbabwe or played against be it at club cricket. And, of course, the first name that sprung to mind was Graham Hick. It's a great pity that Graham's test career only started seven years after he went to Worcester because that's the period of time he had to uh, spend qualifying to play for England because I, I do think that that waiting period was costly in terms of how it changed his uh, focus and uh, mental aspect of the game. He was an outstanding cricketer from a very early age. I think he played for Zim at 16 and a half, 17. I batted with him a few times in the first season. Young Aussie came across here. A couple of other sides came across. And you knew from a very early age that this was an outstanding player. His record in England speaks for itself. His test record doesn't speak uh, volumes to what 
an outstanding player he was. In my view, had he got test, if he'd played test matches from 17, which is when he had the ability to play at that level, he would have been a world beater. He really would have been. Um, I think the waiting period cast shadows of doubt on his mental approach in the game at times. And, of course, he had to come in and face a West Indian attack for the first time to start with. That didn't help. Um, let's just say this. Graham was an outstanding player. He, he, he was an underrated bowler. I think in early in his oh, career yes. he bowled a lot too and, and was a very fine off spinner. Brilliant fielder. Batting-wise, a strong front foot player, tall man, very hard-hitting. Um, Matt Hayden of Australia was a left-hander. But for those who, who, who know Matt Hayden, that sort of domineering personality in the crease. Introverted guy, but a strong, dem, uh, uh, dem, uh, strong player with the bat in his hand. Bat, yeah. um, uh, and I would put him right at the top of the best players I ever played with or against. So I once had a, a bit of a chat with Dean Jones, a uh, former Australian batsman, and he came up with a very interesting theory. So there were two theories. He said that Zimbabwe actually should have got test status when they first applied. I believe it was 1982, and, and I think you'll be able to, to uh, correct me on this, but they eventually got it 10 years later. So he says that, in his opinion, having played against Zimbabwe on several occasions, uh, Zimbabwe were probably a stronger side with uh, obviously players who were much younger. So you would have been much younger. Dave Houghton would have been much younger. Zimbabwe would have still had the likes of, of Duncan Fletcher, Peter Rawson, uh, a younger Ali Shah, and, of course, a young Graham Hick. Paddy Clift was still Paddy Clift, him. absolutely, yes. Wow, that's a name. And and so that, that team in Dean Jones and uh, apparently a lot of the Australians' opinion should actually have got test status um, as opposed to the team who got it in 1992 where players were a lot older and the younger players coming through perhaps weren't maybe at that time as talented. Um, and he also says that had Graham Hick maybe played test cricket for Zimbabwe as opposed to England where the pressures would have been considerably less. So assuming Zimbabwe got the test status in 1982, you probably would have found that Graham Hick would have scored a great deal more runs playing for Zimbabwe. So you wouldn't have had the first-class record to speak of possibly because nobody would have picked a Zimbabwe to play first-class cricket then. But so, so in other words, the difference is that he would have probably, have, in Dean Jones's opinion, scored more test runs playing for Zimbabwe with less pressure on those broad shoulders versus the huge amounts of pressure playing for England. Would that make sense? Would make sense. We'll never know. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, international cricket has changed so much. The way it's uh, run by ICC has changed so much. The ability of someone to come into a, a different test-playing country from where they were born has, has altered immeasurably. I mean, you, you take the, the example of Geoffrey Archer. Geoffrey mm. Archer has just gone into the England side after a wait of no time at all. If Graham had had that advantage, I'm suggesting he would have his stats for England would have been way better. Um, our best uh, test cricketer with the bat is undoubtedly Andy Flower, whose average was over 50. I mean, coming from a, from a lower nation in the test rung, that's quite outstanding. Andy was a keeper. But I, I suggest that Graham would have been there or above. Mm, that makes huge amounts of sense. Got with a few more test wickets as well to his name as well. So, what is it like? What is it like playing with, watching someone like a Dave Houghton, who was a, a mediocre batsman, and I'm quoting him by the way. It's not me saying that, but 
sort of transforming himself from a mediocre batsman to a very useful batsman who not only played well for Zimbabwe, but played in World 11s, scored runs against a lot of opposition for World 11s. What is it like watching from the sidelines to see a pretty stodgy, uh, you know, very ordinary batsman develop himself into an incredibly free-flowing, dominating middle-order batsman, uh, you know, that being Dave Houghton? Um, we played again with each other an awful amount, so probably 10, 12 years, batting at four and five for, for Zim. I would disagree with you that he, he didn't have the ability to start with. He always had the ability. Right. What happened was that he matured. And when he matured, um, I, I mean, mid-20s or whatever it was, he became the great player that, he, that, he, that, that everyone knows. Um, what Davey did, um, he, he thought out the box, and when he batted, he was one of those. He was one of the first that started reverse sweeping, yes. playing both sides of the wicket, playing unorthodox cricket, and he was able to do that. He had such a good eye and very quick feet. Um, so, I think it was the, the mental, the mental maturing that 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 was the the difference between early Davy Houghton and what we knew later. And of, of course, Mark uh, Nicholas and Tom Moody. Now, Tom Moody will know because he also played, uh, well, Dave Houghton was his coach at Worcestershire, the former Australian all-rounder, but Tom also played in a couple of World 11s and had a first-hand experience of Dave scoring 114 in Port Elizabeth uh, against the likes of Farney de Villiers, Brett Schultz, Alan Donald, Pat Simcox uh, for a Kepler Vessels benefit uh, game. And they suggested that and if, uh, that uh, Dave Houghton, I beg your pardon, they suggested that Dave Houghton actually was very was well ahead of his time and had similarities, not the consistency, but similarities, for example, to an A.B. de Villiers in the way that he was able to manipulate the field. Well, he did exactly that. And a good example of that was also the 140 he got in the World Cup against um, New, Zealand. New Zealand in 1987, that uh, magnificent knock that he played, nearly won the game with it. Um, he did have that ability to improvise. So... In modern cricket, in T20 cricket, which we, our era, never had the, the uh, joy of playing, he would have been magnificent. What made Edo Brandis at his best? I mean, I know that lots of times he underperformed and he wasn't always as fit as he should have been, but I want to put all of that aside and focus on Edo at his best. What made him such a, a difficult bowler? You would have faced him a couple of times as well. When he was at his best, what made him such a handful? Also stood a lot at slip when he was bowling right. test cricket and, 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 and first-class cricket. He was quick. He was quicker than uh, people remember. I mean, you don't have the, you didn't have the speed guns then that they do now and can tell you exactly what you were bowling. But I would guess that Edo was uh, 140 to 145 all the time uh, when he was in, uh, you know, in, in rhythm and, and on form. He had late swing despite that, waist swing. And he had the ability, and, and, and this shows how naive we were and how, Far the game has progressed in all respects, and uh, perhaps we were left behind at that time. He had the ability to reverse swing. Unfortunately, not only was he not aware of it, we all weren't aware of it, and we didn't know really the principles of it. He had the perfect action to reverse swing the ball. And how many times did we say from slip when he came on for his third spell, Edda, every time you come back, it looks as though you're aiming too straight. You need to aim it more outside. So, And he, he didn't know he was reverse swinging. And it was literally that happening. But he had, the, he had a really good Yorker, he had a good bouncer, and he had a good awareness of where he had to bowl. So when he was in rhythm, he could be unplayable. All right, well, there you are. Fantastic stuff from Zimbabwe's match referee Andy Pycroft. Just uh, 
talking about some of the experiences he's had as a match referee and then rolling back the years and talking about some of the former players who played very well for Zimbabwe. You've been listening to the Dean at Stumps podcast. It's been a great joy being with you. Please try and spread the word that this podcast is available on all the major platforms and uh, there's some really nice interviews as well uh, with some of the finest cricketers, both current and former. But I'll be back with you again pretty soon with another edition. Until then, it's goodbye. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. Podcast.